Hello, and welcome to the One Big Podcast. It is me, your host, fellow worker Jason. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, fellow worker Derek. Say hello, Derek. Hello. And today we have on the podcast from our branch here in Ipsy, fellow worker Alec. How are you? Hey, how's it going? Today, we're talking about um, a subject that might prickle some um, managers in your life, boss fragility. Uh, Derek, would you like to explain the, the subject? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that this is something that people who have listened to the show are probably familiar with and that they've heard me talk about it in the past. Uh, it is It is something that when I heard Alec kind of talk about it the first time, immediately resonated with me, right? I'd never, I'd never really heard about it. We've heard about fragility in a lot of contexts. Uh, so like the idea of fragility is probably not something, it's probably something that, that many of us are familiar with, but I'd never really heard about, like, you know, we talk about like white fragility and we talk about, you know, fragility in, in, other, in other instances, but I've never really heard somebody say like boss fragility. And as soon as, as soon as Alec started talking about that, um, you know, I think many years ago at this, I guess many years ago, four or four-ish years ago at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel I, 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 it just immediately connected with something that I understood about the workplace, right? Um, this, this, this emotional response that bosses have when they are challenged, when their positions of power and authority are challenged in the workplace. Uh, so Alec, I mean, this is a term that I have largely taken from you and I'd love to hear like, you know, when sure. you first conceived of it and, 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 and how, like, like, what is this from your own perspective? Well, I, I stole it in turn from Robin D'Angelo, of course, who, uh, you know, has written the book on white fragility. And uh, I was reading her work at the time that we were also organizing, um, around issues of racism in a coffee shop workplace and the parallels between, you know, how bosses related to workers and how racism functions in this particular uh, context that, you know, she refers to as fragile, they were striking. They're not, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but there's a lot of resemblance there. And basically I started using the term boss fragility to describe situations where bosses are, using their emotions or their displays of emotion as a way to not address a, a worker's grievance. So, you know, we've been, we were in negotiations for about six months uh, at Mighty Good Coffee. And, and this was, you know, we didn't even reach one single tentative agreement. A lot of, of times what would happen, you know, if we proposed certain solutions was that, you know, it was met with uh, umbrage or there was just this concept that, uh, that, you know, the, presumption that there was a problem was wrong. Uh, and in white fragility, uh, according to D'Angelo, you know, the, the phenomenon is that it, the, the purpose, the function of it is to, to take race off the table, to not address uh, racism by sort of refocusing on uh, sort of the politics in the room or the, um, the emotions of, of white folks. And so it, it has this you know, this clever role, this, this function of keeping power in, in place by kind of uh, refocusing our attention. And that's what boss fragility essentially means to me is that, uh, you know, when a worker brings up a grievance, uh, there is a very good chance, a sort of conventionalized chance now in our work cultures that bosses are going to respond uh, with an overreaction of some sort, and it's going to be emotional in some sense. Of course, why wouldn't you come talk to me? You know, of course, I always, you know, try and do the best for you and, and make your schedule the way you need it. 
when in fact, you know, that's a kind of like gaslighting or um, sort of implies that there was uh, uh, miscommunication uh, in, in the exchange with the worker or, or that they have kind of done something wrong or uh, been offensive. So that's the, the fragility aspect. Just like D'Angelo says white fragility works as a kind of racial bullying. I think that boss fragility works as a kind of bullying in our workplace to keep workers uh, observant of the hierarchy that's supposed to obtain there, you know, where bosses have the control. But it's, it's really a specific instance of something much more general, which is uh, what I've started calling dignophobia, an analogy with like homophobia, transphobia, this idea that in work culture in uh, America today, there is a pervasive negative attitude about the dignity or autonomy of workers, you know, so that 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 comes up, you know, in, in myriad different ways. But it's a it's a sentiment that can be expressed pretty freely in a workplace, um, in these low key ways, and and nobody you know thinks anything of it. So like when the boss leaves for lunch or, or something and makes a crack about like you know people better not goof off while while I'm not observing you, you know that's a, a kind of a dignophobic sentiment, and uh, you know bosses do uh, exhibit that kind of of behavior and attitude often, but but so do we as workers. And so uh, I think we have a, a large degree of sort of internalized dignophobia too, where we uh, look at that that hierarchy that's supposed to obtain between you know bosses and workers, and we do a lot of our own sort of uh, you know self-flagellation and accommodation and adjustment to make sure that we don't challenge that power dynamic. And so I just started thinking, you know, about various kinds of a, oppression and struggle in our society, different types of inequality. And it seemed to me that, you know, worker boss relations have a lot of pattern congruity with these other ways that we're learning about uh, addressing inequality and learning to speak about it. And so, I, you know, these terms, I, I've come to them and sort of had to make them up uh, as a way of filling in these gaps in, uh, in this matrix that, that's uh, emerging for how we think about oppression. Yeah, and I mean, I think, so I, I, think, it's, I think it's important, right, you know, in, in the IWW's view, and I imagine other people's view as well, like the workplace, the workplace is like a focus point of power, right? And it is, it is, it is very rigid in, in, in so many ways. Uh, I, I'm sure that some people work at places with super chill bosses that, that you know treat people relatively well and equally, but a lot of places, especially places where we organize, have a very clear hierarchy. The boss is in charge. The boss makes decisions, and and you know I might give you a chance to weigh in on it, but you know we're not we're not going to take they're not going to take this too seriously. So I just want to like highlight an example. A couple of years ago, we had. We had a social service worker, um, you know, they were a, they're a social worker, still are a social worker, in fact, but they were working at a, at, at a place here in Washtenaw County. Um, actually, I think it was Wayne County, but regardless, they had this big all staff meeting, right? So big all staff meeting and, and the, and the, and the bosses had made it clear, like, this is your time. This, this is a time where we get together and you can ask any of your questions, you know, how are things going? Um, how, like, like how's business, how's work, how's interaction with clients? Let's talk, let's put it all in the open and have a conversation. Um, and so this worker had been very uh, had been very frustrated with 
like salary freezes and uh, like during the pandemic, but, but then managers seeing some pay increases and, and, and there were, there were a lot of like wage discrepancies and like new hires versus people who had been there. And so at this meeting, she asked about it and she was immediately like shut down. This is not the appropriate space to have a conversation about that. Well, first of all, that's, that's wrong. You said anything goes here. So this is an open forum for that. Um, but, but all right. Uh, so, so she, 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 I think she said something else. I don't recall. I don't remember every detail, but the, but the point is, is what happened next, right? Cause that wasn't the end of it because after that, um, her boss came to her and basically said, what you did was inappropriate. It embarrassed. And like the phrasing that they used was like, it, it embarrassed the manager, like the vice president or HR rep, whatever the person who was there embarrassed them and they're mad and so they got into an argument about like they got into like a I wouldn't I don't know I wasn't party to the whole thing but they got into a back and forth about this basically that eventually resulted in her being called into uh into her direct supervisor's office where instead of addressing this issue directly right they start to like gaslight her about her work quality and her and her and her effort so like this response to a simple concept in an open forum in an open forum about anything except right. for wages apparently except for wages uh yes. because boy that really embarrassed the 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 higher up here um has resulted now in like this really uncomfortable situation where she's now under the microscope right this is not an us problem this is actually a you problem. And they actually used this, this whole situation in that open meeting as further evidence that she wasn't a team player, that, uh, you know, that she was, that she was just complaining and openly agitating things um, and, and eventually resulted in her being fired when she pushed back um, and they eventually fired her. Now I will say in this case, it hasn't, ha it has a happy ending because she did file a complaint with the national labor relations board that resulted in a substantial settlement, uh, because that company violated the law. Um, and, and so that, that's great for her, but boy, what an example. I, I bet of that was really embarrassing. <laughs> it might've been. And, but, but also the, the thing that's so interesting is the repair that happened, right? As soon as they fired her, as soon as they fired her, there wasn't, it, it, that wasn't the end of it either. Like it wasn't just like, it was this, it was this progressive thing by which, you know, we bully you for a couple of weeks. We expect you to go away, to drop these issues. You won't, you keep coming. And so then we, so then we fire you. Um, yep. And that's not the end of it because after she gets fired, they then start talking about, about the problems, like her as a problematic employee. This is why she, you know, she was let go this is the problem. She was she was hurting teams, etc. All of which was total bullshit. Period. Um, but the repair of their reputation—it wasn't them. It's not our fault. This of is course. one bad worker who is complaining. And none of you have this problem, right? Because none of you have mentioned it to us before. So, I like that felt like such an example to me of reaction to like their fragility as bosses yep and notice how it's it, you know just like you're describing it may at first appearance seem like a mere reaction an emotional reaction something out of their control but it turns into very quickly that form of bullying or that form of uh making you know the, the person who has brought up a grievance the problem and then systematically trying to isolate uh that person and 
and go after the uh, attention of, of everyone else, you know, who's observed it. In that way, you know, it's, it's really eerily uh, similar to what I have seen happen, um, you know, in terms of white fragility and racism in my workplace. They run, they run parallel in a lot of ways. It's so wild to me that some people are most scared of being embarrassed or like humiliated. Cause I, mean, I used to get up on stage and like humiliate myself on purpose and like, it's fine. It, it goes away. There's something to it. Right. Because I, I mean that, I don't know, I don't know that it's true or not, but there's like a, there's like a perception that, that I feel like we are the boss, like we are beyond reproach. And I think that's, I think, I think that's, I think that's part of it. It's about protecting the hierarchy in some ways. Right. And these are, these are like the informal ways that we protect the hierarchy. We build these, we build these right. like these structures in our workplace by which, by which a violation of these norms, a challenge to the boss's authority, um, is is a challenge to the boss's authority. Whether that's like higher, well, I mean not higher, higher, but whether that's like embarrassing us, whether that's like challenging a decision that we made whether that is demanding something um, from like, who are you to demand anything from us? This is our space, our fiefdom, we're in charge. And so like that, that reaction isn't the, you know, um, Jason, you pro- professional, professional self-fool maker, um, song artist, whatever you may call yourself. But professional like, idiot. Professional idiot. Love it. Beautiful. Um, but you know, there's like, that's, that, that's also like part of, part of what you do on stage, right? Like I, 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 I don't do karaoke. I'm not a public singer. Um, that feels really weird to me. I'm not sure that I could do it, but like being publicly challenged by somebody where I have authority, like, what do I do about that? Well, the answer apparently is gaslight them and bully them. (laughs) (laughs) When we do it to ourselves, then, then if we do it, you know, um, it's almost as if without, and I, bosses, I think, do a lot of this unwittingly, you know, just just the same way that, um, you know, as a white person, I'm, I'm often unaware of my racism. It's subconscious. It leaks out in these these uh, deeply entrenched ways. But whether they know it or not, bosses work very hard to construct sensitized environments in which this kind of embarrassment or humiliation is guaranteed, you know, or very likely so that you there's almost no right move other than keeping your head down being uh, very, you know, compliant. Uh, humor is sometimes, you know, one of the only ways that you can kind of wiggle around in that in a workplace. And so, of course, people, you know, they, they cross that line and, and almost by example, because, you know, bosses need to constantly be making that example of someone. Then, of course, this whole thing manifests in other weird ways, the hierarchy of the like workplace in the whole like, we're all a family here. So then the boss starts thinking of themselves as like the parent who has that kind of authority. Like they're going to ground me if I you know, don't do my work on time. And it's like, I clock out at five. I don't have to mm-hmm. listen to you anymore. That's that's the end of it. And you're not something my like dad. I, it's five o'clock. <laughs> something I wish I could do to my real parents, but. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the family yeah. metaphor, a whole, a whole can of worms, but, but it does the same thing. You know, there's a theme here, which is like power is trying to cover itself up. So we're not, you know, and, and the theme, you know, also means that if the challenge happens at all, workers have to be goaded into it, or apparently that's the framing here is that the worker has created the uh, embarrassing, violating challenge by not following social rules of uh, etiquette, politeness, respect, so that workers are disrespectful, basically. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's all a way of softening the like inherent uh, 
I guess, violence for lack of a better term of yeah. hierarchy structure. You know, it's like, no, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just your boss. Who's got control over your life for eight hours a day, at least, you know? And like, if you were to look at it more in, you know, black and white and you're like, Oh, well, I don't like you. I don't like the system, but if you soften those edges, then people, you know, it goes in easier. <laughs> I mean, I'll also say that like, if you look at, so I see this in bargaining. I think you started talking, Alec, you know, about like some of the fragility that we that, that we saw while bargaining with Mighty Good Coffee, right? And and you see it basically basically everywhere. Like one of the one of the tools that the bosses use unwittingly often, right? Like they're just they're so used to sort of a position of authority and prestige and respect that when you sit across the table and and you kind of give them your demands and tell them this is what this is what we see i was in i was in bargaining i was in bargaining many years ago um, and we submitted a proposal that basically increased salaries almost doubled salaries for for a group of lecturers right and uh, part-time lecturers like per class so it would have doubled their 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 per class to like a from like a $2,000 per class, like three credit hour class, like a $5,000 per credit hour class. And that's a substantial increase, granted, but it's also becoming more and more a standard, uh, especially especially in places where like part-time lecturers are essentially surviving paycheck to paycheck, where part-time lecturers in particular, not to ignore the plight of other lecturers, but part-time lecturers in particular, some of them are homeless or have, fo- have, or have food insecurity. Like we're not, we're not just joking around here. This is not this is not, this is a serious offer. This is, this is what we need to live. And the response from the administration was like, from management at that point was condescend, was condescension. It was, oh, thank you for showing us your dream offer, right? Like, thank you for showing us, thank you for showing us your dream offer. And, and that wasn't a logical response. And I, and I, and I want to be real clear, like there's, there's this, there's this, there's like this imagination that some people have that I just think they're wrong about. And that is like, what is bargaining? What is negotiating with a boss? What is demanding what we want? Well, it's like reasonable arguments, right? It's like reasonable people sitting down and making logical arguments. And one side just kind of, I don't know what, like has this superior argument. And the other side just says, you know what? That's a really good point. I can't believe we've been underpaying you these entire years and exploiting <laughs> you. That's been a total accident. We never meant to do that. Super sorry, guys. Like uh-huh. that's, that's that, that there are people who like live in a world where they think that that is how this kind of thing happens. And they don't realize like the visceral emotional reaction that happens in the room in front of a boss or with or with a boss. And like I remember when we when we pushed this across and they and they came back and said, thank you for showing us your dream proposal. Right. And I'm putting some extra emphasis in their words here. But it was just, it was like disregarded. It was disregarded. It felt like a slap in the face. We felt like demoralized. Um, you know, at first we we rebounded, but like that sort of like that reaction completely ignores. And, and, and it's an emotional reaction. They didn't give us an argument, right? They didn't sit there and explain why the offer was a dream or what the budget was or why they couldn't afford it. It was it was an unintentional, I think, because I don't I don't I don't believe that there are villains in back rooms. Like this is what we'll say to really get them this time, right? But like it was like an emotional reaction that comes from a place of of privileged power, a place where they are the decision makers, where 
where they haven't done anything to hurt people and and they and they know what's best for the institution or the business um and like that was just like this dream offer they actually acted like we had insulted them you know when we came back and said no this is not a dream offer this is a real offer this is based on X, Y, and Z comparable. This is based on the cost of living and the need for health insurance. And, and, and they're like, well, this, 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 this is honestly insulting. We couldn't show this to anybody. They'd laugh us out of the room, right? So not, again, not a logical argument, just pure emotional response to being told you are vastly underpaying workers in this space. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, I think, I think you touch on one of the biggest obstacles that we have in organizing, in negotiating, in you know living as as free people in in our our work lives, and that is that, in as much as we are really underpaid, not able to have everything we basically need, uh, there is there is a real grievance, and you know any time we're trying to change this uh, power structure at work uh, or or secure you know any gains for workers. That's the hardest part is for for you know management to acknowledge that there there has been longstanding systematic uh, injury to workers and you know and we may not be specifically asking for an apology in that moment but it's a very psychologically you know freighted thing to to get someone to to that point where there can be uh, adult serious level negotiation um, because of that you know and 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 unfortunately the this is a challenge that you know I I think about a lot, but I don't know what exactly we do um, tactically or strategically to address it. But we as workers bear a lot of that psychological burden for the bosses because if it's if it's off the table, if it's just an impossibility that they've been underpaying people or mistreating people for a long time, and we can't you know even graciously acknowledge that fact, then how are we how are we going to get to that kind of uh, ideal relationship where we really do have a respectful negotiation. And, uh, you know, I've only seen maybe a handful of organized workplaces and only uh, been at the negotiating table in one of them. But I have not yet seen a scenario where I genuinely could, could hope for uh, honest, respectful communication like that with, a, with management. Um, I haven't seen it. I mean, I think it's actually really surprisingly absent, even among, you know, quote unquote, good people, nice people who are our bosses and want and and probably sincerely want to to be able to have that relationship, but but can't deal with a lot of the structural baggage that uh, needs to be unpacked to get there. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about that earlier today, how like, even if you like your boss, they're participating in a system that devalues you as a person, like, their goal, no matter how nice of a person they are, is to pay you as little as possible and give you as little as possible because that's what's good for the company, you know? Yeah. And, like, whether they're, like, a saint outside of that doesn't matter. When it comes to that relationship, it's always going to be marked by that, you know? Because cool. I've got some, I've had some cool bosses in my life. Sure. But, yeah, <laughs> when it came to a pay raise, not friends anymore. Right. Well, and, and and I think that's so, I think that's very, it's such an important that's such an important thing to 
to realize. So, you know, there are a lot of people while we're out there organizing that are very risk averse and they're not just risk averse because they don't want to get fired, but like, and, and thinking about fragility as a concept, like they know how the boss will respond. They know the boss might be mad about what you're demanding. They know the boss might throw a hissy fit. You know, they'll stomp their feet. They'll yell. They'll, you know, they'll refuse to come into work for a few days. Uh, they'll slash everyone's hours, even though it hurts the business. Like this is the, this is the this is the thing that it's so important to realize that it's not a logical decision. It's an emotional reaction. And we expect these things like like they might actively hurt the business for a couple of days just because they are angry about something or longer. They might or, close they might close a, a profitable business because they, they don't want to to address the social and psychological situation at hand. And when your like economic bottom line isn't just predicated on I need a job here but also I need good shifts here and you know to 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 get to get a raise I need to make sure that the boss likes me um you know like even even in my workplace for example I'm I'm a very gregarious guy I'm a very social guy I know I know many people I know that there are people around me who are doing the same damn quality of work that I am um and the question of the question you know, we talk about our salaries often. We talk about our experiences with management amongst each other very frequently. And when this comes up, the question is, you know, what's your relationship with your boss? And for a lot of these folks, it's just not as good. They don't interact as positively. Uh, the boss is maybe sometimes a bit of a bully in some cases. And, and so like, they don't see similar pay increases as, and I would say as, as a result. And so like when your economic bottom line is predicated on an emotional, emotionally volatile person whose reaction to challenging their authority or demanding something from them is essentially not even to fire you, but to like give you a slow death, to bully you out of the workplace. Like that's a trauma that most people don't want to have to deal with. It's so much more like, hell, if you fired me, it's like ripping the bandaid off. Like, sure, I don't want that to happen, but at least it's over. In this case, it's, it's like a month of bullying. Every time I come in, passive aggressive comments about, about my work or showing up five minutes late, or you better not have punched in, your ship doesn't start for 10 minutes. Like these, mm -hmm. these, these types of reactions to us, suddenly it becomes like emotional warfare. It's, it's like economic, emotional warfare, and it takes its toll in a very real way. I think it does. And, you know, and of course, workers pay the most. But one, you know, one thing that, that I think about often uh, in undertaking these projects in, in workplaces is that it's not good for anybody. Like, even though it appears to serve the bosses by giving them power or control, it's a kind of toxic power. If you're wielding this kind of emotional manipulation over others, uh, you know, unless you're a, a pure sadist, it really can't feel good. Uh, and so, you know, it's just, I, I really feel like we're kind of all caught in a, a dysfunctional system here, uh, you know, including most of, of management. Uh, and so, you know, it's just like, we all, we all stand to gain something, uh, some, some sanity, some genuineness uh, by looking at, the, at these patterns of fragility, passive aggression, gaslighting, and trying to, to sort of make them visible so that we can like decide, hey, this is fucked up and maybe we should you know, do something different. Yeah. And I think um, some of the worst emotional responses 
from Ross Fragility comes from the people who buy into the myth, right? Like you get this with like celebrities a lot, you know, the humble celebrities stay cool forever and never do anything crazy um, because they're just like, yeah, I'm just a dude. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. I'm okay. But the people who like buy into their own celebrity suddenly turn into crazy people. Uh, and I think that's the same with bosses where like, as soon as they buy into, oh, I've got a little bit of power. I'm, mm-hmm. I must be better than all these other people that I'm in charge of. And the, mm-hmm. as soon as one of them challenges that, you know, they're like, oh, but we're not equal human beings. They can't challenge me. And like, that's when you get those really emotional responses. Cause you're just like, no, you're challenging the system that rewarded me. Mm-hmm. That system can't be wrong. Cause I'm a good person, you know? Right. Right. And in a town like, in a town like, you know, in a town like Ann Arbor, and it's probably true elsewhere where people are organizing, like Ann Arbor is a liberal town, but it is, it is a cosmopolitan liberal town, right? Like it is, it is, it is, it is a place that has lots of money. It seems so departed from the working class in any real way. Uh, and I have to say that there are no working class folks in Ann Arbor, but like the image and the the kind of political momentum here is that of wealthy liberals who vote with their dollars and vote at the booth. And beyond that, like, you know, what what else what else are they doing? And so and so when you when you when you find a place where, you know, these plucky young liberals who who put their Black Lives Matters um, signs out in their front yard um, and they start a business and and they're like, yes, I'm a good person. And you hear this all the time in a city like Ann Arbor. Well, I support unions, just not at my workplace. Right. Like we don't need one because I'm I'm a good boss. And and and, and the question is, well, well, then why are your workers organizing? Like, why are your workers mad about, like, why are your workers mad about wages or a policy that you made without consulting them? Um, uh, Alec, what, what, what were you gonna, what were you gonna say? I was just noticing the, the sort of dignophobia afoot here, you know, that um, just the idea that it's inherently indicating a problem mm-hmm. if, if, if workers have any autonomy, any say in our own uh, work lives. And, and I think you know that's that's how deeply embedded it is in our, our social fabric is is that you know we think that that it automatically indicates something is wrong as opposed to uh, you know genuine equality and democratic processes are are alive and healthy here. Um, and you know I think there's a there's a great uh, distinction that that Richard Edwards makes in in contested terrain this this um, big labor history. Uh, home from the, the 70s that he distinguishes between control on the one hand and, and coordination. Uh, and a mistake we make a lot when we think about what it means to be a manager is to conflate these two. So thinking that like, okay, well, you know, I, someone has to, to figure out when all the workers will come on which days and, and which shifts. Uh, but that person doesn't necessarily also have to have the power and authority to make those decisions without challenge or make those decisions without uh, influence, you know? So bosses often part of the um, sort of fragility writ large or, or the, um, you know, the concept of, of bosses is often defended by, by folks by saying, well, somebody has to do this, this function. And that's true. Like businesses do need coordinators sure. of various kinds. It's, it's this mistake that we make where we think that coordinator, you know, 
uh, also has to have some kind of institutional power, some sort of authority or control uh, that goes along with that job. And so, you know, that's that seems so, uh, you know, so normal to us that um, that I think it's one of the ways in which we don't notice how that fragility starts to creep up in people who just become managers, you know, uh, because someone had to step up and do the do that job. And I know that in organizing campaigns that uh, you and I have have consulted on, there if there's high turnover, especially in service work, and that one of the things that happens is that these these kind of like entry level boss jobs, you know, shift manager positions and and so forth, they get filled by really you know hardworking, energetic, uh, rank and file workers, and and. And then all of a sudden, I think that's where some of the, the seeds become sowed of like, like the structure itself builds in that conflict. And, uh, and so, you know, one thing we might think about doing more is, is you know, trying to recognize just dignity uh, at the rank and file level. So, you know, why, why don't we uh, appreciate suggestions from the bottom or, or from our coworkers? I guess we, we also spend a lot of our attention up the, up the hierarchy. So, you know, one thing I had to do as a worker in, in my workplace who wanted to, um, to change these dynamics was to start trying to move my attention laterally to what are my coworkers doing? What kinds of, uh, you know, dignity are they bringing to the, the workplace and what are, are they feeling and thinking right now as opposed to what used to be typical for me, which was, what's the boss thinking right now? What does the boss want me to be looking like or doing or, or what have you? And I think that in, in subtle ways, you know, if, if we shift our attention there, as opposed to always up, uh, that, that that's gonna be, you know, some something foundational for, for actually having solidarity. So a rambly thought there, you know, I'm, I'm just noticing as I say it, that, that we're really in this war about attention, you know, like that's how violence works, that's how power works is that they, they both control where you pay attention. And if workers are scared, if there's, you know, consequences and, and they, they would, you know, do well for themselves to, to look practically only towards uh, those who have, you know, the, the paycheck in hand or could fire them, that's, you know, that's how power works. But, um, but if we really, you know, if we're gonna subvert boss hierarchies, we really gotta start, uh, paying attention to, uh, to each other. Well, I think that's a, I think it's an important kind of point to sort of uh, move towards ending on, right? Which is, which is, what do we do about frost, boss, boss fragility? How do we, how do we react to it? How do we use it to our advantage? Uh, and, you know, one of the, one of the things that seems, you know, really important to me is what, what I've heard you talk about here, Alec, which is the need to listen to each other, to be there for each other, to talk to each other, to form those solidarity networks, to confront the boss collectively, right? Um, there is an inherent, under capitalism in most workplaces, there's an inherent workplace, uh, in, uh, workplace power imbalance between bosses and workers. I think, I think what I really just wanna say here is that it just seems so important to me to identify that our response to how bosses react has to be by getting together and not not just supporting one another, but also collectively watching this happen, right? Like there's something, there is something I think very powerful in having a group of workers watch the boss react emotionally and collectively looking at each other and saying, what the fuck? Like what? 
was that? Um, because because a we we all got together and we acted like largely mature adults. Yeah, we marched on the boss. Yeah, we we made some demands, but we didn't threaten to burn down the business. We didn't threaten to like to to murder his family or or throw a brick through the window. Like yes. we, we didn't. Yes. So you know we didn't do anything crazy. We just said, look. We need better wages or cleaner schedules, or we need you to respect our availability. And the boss's reaction was to stomp his feet and to yell about how we're all lazy millennials and then storm off into his office. Like there is something powerful about collectively watching that temper tantrum and realizing that the boss is like a child in this way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then kind of protecting and insulating ourselves from that trauma by being there collectively to witness it and then talk about it. Yeah, it's yeah. always helpful when you have a bunch of adults watching other adult freak out. And then you're just like, we're all seeing, the, we're all feeling the same way <laughs> about how this guy's acting. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Like he's a, he's freaking out and we should probably put it on TikTok or something because it's that <laughs> freaky. <laughs> there's a, I think there's a, a cause for hope here, which is that, um, you know, because this is so pervasive, and I think a lot of folks recognize this in their workplace, uh, this, this fragility, this gaslighting, this weird emotional uh, texture to interactions, there's this real appetite that, um, that I've encountered over and over from fellow workers who reach out for help, which is the people would like to be a little more genuine at work. They'd like to be a little more uh, adult at, at work and, and have your, uh, you know, democratic equal relationships with people. And, you know, our work cultures don't leave much room for that genuineness at work. And so there's a strong appetite for it. And I think that that is a well that we, you know, keep drawing from uh, as organizing workers, you know, as the, the people do want to, to unpack that and do want to get to a point where we can collectively witness things like you're suggesting uh, so that, you know, we can we can process it and sort of, uh, you know, develop a, a more accurate uh, narrative together about what's really happening at work. And, you know, that seems to be a, a piece of, of how we get uh, strength and energy back to to marginalize bosses who are really having these these uh, delusional temper tantrums. Yeah, and like, I've as I've probably mentioned before, I'm into worker ownership and like, you know, ha not having a boss. And if that were to happen, and with in, if you're trying to do something like that, you're still going to have to deal with personalities and people might be mad and stuff and they might have like um, those tendencies kind of like baked in already from mm -hmm. other jobs and they'll have to like unlearn those things but like if someone has a freak out when you're all have the same power then it's just one person and your life doesn't change because of it you know what i mean you don't get fired you don't you know get bullied or whatever it's just one person has a freak out everybody goes okay we need to talk to this person about their freak out and you work through it so i guess what i would say is that it really it's always it's always very interesting to me when the boss when the boss reacts around these emotional outbursts because I think that one thing a lot of workers are interested in and willing to do is step up to to shoulder 
some responsibility to be more equal partners in business. And I'm not saying every worker wants that. And so I love the cooperative worker ownership model. And it's in, in regardless of how we handle boss fragility, right? Um, I, I would be super curious to know how common it is even in like worker owned places, because in theory, like that's depending on how your workplace is structured, we made you a manager and we can unmake you as a manager. <laughs> so, so, so that's definitely a, a very real part of it, but, but like, even in, like, even in workplaces, right? Like ultimately most workers don't want a business to close. And so like the boss's very fragile response, like, this is the thing that always kills me about this thing too. Like we can't get a union, the business, the business can't afford that. Like we don't want the business to close. Like this is literally our paycheck. We 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 work here. What we're ultimately what we're asking for is, you know, broader engagement, workplace democracy, more say into our working conditions. Um, and maybe we can't raise wages. You know, maybe let's open up the books and have a look. Um, and maybe we can't. Maybe we can't. Maybe we can't raise those wages. But but we can do other things, can't we? Like maybe we can stabilize schedules. Maybe we can, maybe we can work out better coverage shifts or, or make sure that like shift supervisors or managers who come in don't just spend all day in the office. They come out and work the floor during busy shifts. That if a customer comes in and is a racist, we can refuse to serve them without fear of losing our jobs. At the very least, we could not make this place a living hell. That's yeah. right. That's that, that 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 that's right. And that's what's always sort of shocked me about about boss fragility, like as a thing. Like the 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 reaction isn't logical. The reaction, if a boss were reacting logically, maybe like I guess in my own position, I would feel like let's have a conversation about what you all need um, and figure out if we can come to some kind of agreement, right? But their reaction, because I assume that most people don't want to lose their livelihood either. So that's like the logical reaction, but the emotional reaction is a visceral reaction to our power and authority being challenged from people in a lower position of authority. Um, and I, and you know, I think I think you're right, Alec, in that you know there is there is hope here. I think we also see people across the country organizing and realizing that when they come together and work together, that they can confront boss fragility more capably like starbucks workers united we talk about these starbucks locations with like store managers who are extremely reactive um and the best way to confront that is by coming up to them collectively and just telling them like you can't behave this way we're not going to stand for this kind of behavior in the workplace we'd love to be able to work with you but like you you are making it impossible and we're not going anywhere so what makes me laugh about it really is um if you're scary to somebody it's never because you're freaking out. Like if you challenge someone's authority and they freak out, you're like, okay, whatever, you giant baby, get a diaper. I can take you out, you know? But if you challenge someone's authority and they're just cool and calm and they're like, okay, we'll see how that goes. They're terrifying. They're going to kill you. <laughs> so like it's so counterintuitive to what they want as well. You know, if they were just like keep their heads, save their freak out for at home, you know, it, they'd be much more terrifying of a force. All right. So, Alec, last words on boss fragility and our responses to it. I just want folks to have those words. And if they seem to fit, you know, have them available as a way of uh, labeling something that happened. Because the way the power works is, is by making itself invisible all the time. And so much of the psychological agony 
uh, of work for a lot of workers, I've been there myself for years, you know, is not knowing if that's really happening and not being able to have a version of reality or an account for yourself that that identifies what's really going on. So uh, if you if you feel like maybe your boss is having a fragile reaction or maybe dignophobia is uh, pervasive in your workplace, probably is. You know, if those if those concepts are salient for you and and meaningful, uh, take them and, and use them and spread them. And if they're not, don't worry about them. And take heart because fragile things break easy. I love it. Uh, that's a great phrase. That's right, why well, I'm chair of agit prop, baby. That's, that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Alec. And, you know, as always, you and other fellow workers, whether from the Ipsy branch or outside in the union, are always welcome on the show. We'd love to hear from folks. And if you have something you want to talk about, let us know. Thanks. It's great to be here. And that's the show, folks. It was recorded and edited by me, fellow worker Jason. The intro and outro song are also by me, fellow worker Jason. If you'd like to join the IWW and be part of the One Big Union, go to iww.org join. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, you can always email us at ipsilani at iww.org. And until next time, an injury to one is an injury to all. <laughs>